You're listening to McBee Care Threads, a podcast where leaders across the healthcare industry can learn from each other. We'll discuss stories and explore strategies to help providers deliver value-based care and hear your peers share their best practices for success. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the McBee Care Threads podcast. My name is Maria Warren and I'm a consulting director here at McBee. Our guest today is Bill Dombey, president of the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. Today's episode will be covering what's going on within NAC, the current home health environment, and a few other topics along the way. So let's get started. Bill, it's an honor to have you as our guest on today's podcast. Though no introduction is needed since you're very well known and truly the voice of the industry, I still want to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and talk about your background. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. And uh, I guess my background could take the entire time of the podcast because, you know, I've been working in this area now since 1976. So it's been 44 years uh, that I've had my first passion stirred in home care and then later hospice. I am the president of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, and I've been at NAC now since 1987. My primary background is actually as a troublemaking litigator suing Medicare, Medicaid, managed care plans, and the like. And that's actually what brought me to NAC in 87 was that the home health care community was in the throes of a whole endless series of retroactive claim denials. And it was about one out of every three claims was being denied. Uh, Then president of NAC, Val Helmanderis, and I knew each other from his days at the Senate Aging Committee. And so he called me in to talk with his board about a possible lawsuit. Well, next thing I know, I'm at NAC suing the Medicare program and told my family we'd be here for about three, four years in D.C. And here it is now, 2020, and I'm I'm still here. So, I, yes, I am a lawyer. Uh, I still do engage in some litigation. I spend a lot of time on policy-related development as well as I'm a lobbyist. I try to persuade Congress and regulators to do what we think is the right thing for the home care and hospice community. So it's been a privilege being in this position for all these years. And, you know, I, I, I really, really have been fortunate to be associated with such great people in home care and hospice all across the country. Thanks for sharing, Bill. I, I know that, you know, a lot of people know you for, for your role, but it's always just great to hear the insights of where the where the passion came from, where, where it all got started, and what, what brought you to where you are today. Now, you've been in the role as president of NAC for about three years now. Tell us a little bit about NAC 2.0 and what you're most excited about. Well, NAC 2.0 was born out of the unfortunate death of the longstanding CEO, Val, but it gave us the opportunity to look inward and outward at the organization to see you know, how we could do better for our membership. And the, the core elements of NAC 2.0 really s- surround what you know, I would call the you know, the the nature of what an association is supposed to be. And I gave an early presentation talking about the power of we. Associations are about members uh, coming together with common cause, uh, as compared to hiring you know some advocacy voices in Washington to speak on your behalf. So that core element is participation, member driven, very much involved in anything and everything we do. Because who has the the best information to give with the people who are out there directly providing home care. And certainly we can help 
in our efforts, yes, I, I consider myself to be a very effective advocate, but I don't provide home care. I don't provide hospice services. So that core concept of member involvement, member engagement on the matter, and translates to what I call ownership, is that the view that the members should have of the organizations that they own it. And ownership brings rights, but it also brings responsibilities. So the game plan with NAC 2.0 is to continue to expand the, the voice of home care uh, in Washington through both a united approach to that, but also through an amplification of the voices, not just within the Beltway, but all across the country, you know, with lobbying activities, advocacy happening at every single part of home care from direct care staff through the owners of organizations. So that is the, the, the central feature in NAC 2.0. Second to that, of course, is, is to really bring value, uh, to demonstrate that, you know, from a pure bottom line sense alone, that the work that we do brings benefits to our members, you know, throughout home health care, hospice and home care services. And we have seen, I think, the fruits of all of that labor so far. We're going through an election process now for a board of directors. Uh, there were three positions running uh, for the board of directors, and we had 20-some-odd nominees, which is really nice when you see that many people stepping up. So those are the elements of NAC 2.0, primarily that whole issue of ownership, engagement, believing that this is a member-driven and seeing it as a member-driven organization. The last thing we brought with NAC 2.0 is something I think that is an essential component of every organization, particularly membership organizations, is transparency and accountability. You know, uh, some suspicions have developed about NAC, which were based on rumor and conjecture. And so we decided we don't want to continue down that path. We simply make sure anybody who wants to know anything gets to know anything and everything about us. That's what a member-driven organization should be, is accountable to its membership. So we're pretty happy with where we stand at this point in time. We are Overall, it had a number of great successes together. We've had these successes with membership. The organization has become very prudent regarding its spending. You know, we, this is not our money we're spending. It's our members' money we're spending. And we've been accountable in terms of setting up the priorities and trying to deliver on that. So that, that's the hallmark of NAC 2.0. But we're already talking about NAC 3.0, you know, where, you know, uh, you know, maybe we're in that now where we're using technologies and communications even more so. I know we hope for a day when we're not doing Zoom meetings and other kinds of meetings all the time by video, but uh, it's what we've had to adopt. And that was one of the things that came out of Mac 2.0. In terms of the staff, just remarkable. We shifted to remote working after the first week of March, and we've continued to do that almost exclusively you know, among the staff all of that time. And maybe maybe I'm a little bit biased on this, but I think we've just really, really stepped up, uh, mm -hmm. you know, just as our members have stepped up in delivering care during the pandemic time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, when you when you touched on and talked about the power of we and where that all started and where the industry ha has come over over just even the last year, you know, from preparing for PDGM and the, the challenges that COVID and the public health emergency has brought on to us, that really everyone has adapted and adjusted and came out so much stronger. Um, you know, the, the industry and just the advocacy group tied to everyone here is so passionate about what they do and how they do it and making sure that we're caring for the patients and the patients' needs are always what comes first. 
So it's really great to see where everything has come and the development of NAC 2.0 and really what 3.0 has has to bring and, and has to offer. So it's I'm excited to see where we continue to go and as we as the industry continues to develop and just how we continue to leverage our strengths to take us forward within the industry. Yeah. One, one additional point to make, and that's, you know, it's reflected in you and the rest of the team at McBee. I mean, McBee is an incredible resource to the home care and hospice world at large. And, you know, from you to Mike Dordick and others have really just been there for us time and time again to provide, you know, community support. You know, we know you're in business of getting clients and paying your bills and everything like that, but you guys have just, you know, from every time we've ever asked, you know, you've been there providing that kind of widespread community support, whether it's our financial management conference, the PDGM summits and so on. So I wanted to, wanted to thank you guys, you know, for being there and demonstrating in real life what it's like to be a community, to come together and to express that power of we. Oh, you're welcome. And we do it because we care. We're passionate about this industry just as much as everybody else. So partnering with NAC, partnering with all the other state associations and organizations, as well as our other partners out there in the industry, and most importantly, all of the providers to help make it happen and continue to celebrate the successes and wins together. So we look forward to that. You know, as we kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about where, where things are within the industry, you know, 2020 happened, everybody prepared for PDGM, and then uh, COVID hit. Early on in the industry, we, we faced t- tons of missed visits for the providers, refusals, a spike in the lupa percentage. You know, when the lupa shifts from two to six visits, that varying threshold. Um, but from the sounds of it, through my conversations with organizations, home health is, is seeing tons of growth. Admission levels, census volumes are up. Patients are trying to stay out of the skilled nursing facilities and the assisted living facilities, really putting that emphasis and focus on care at home. So what are you seeing and hearing as providers have learned uh, to manage through COVID? Well, you know, it'd be nice if we could call it a blip, you know, in March, April, May, perhaps, but it's a little too big to call it a, a blip. We, we definitely saw the data showing reduced revenues, the causes, as you outlined them, from patients refusing admission to hospitals, not having elective surgeries and so on. But we are seeing, you know, a, a growth towards the pre-COVID time period, while some providers are actually reporting, you know, an increase from even year over year. For, uh, in terms of their patient admissions from last year. So beyond even what we had at the beginning of this year. So challenging times, I don't think we're through the times. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we are, are definitely seeing uh, some of the aspects that you mentioned, too, that people are avoiding congregate living, avoiding congregate care, be it nursing homes, assisted living facilities and the like, and turning towards care in the home. To the extent that we are now shopping in Washington, our skilled nursing facility at home benefit construction to fit into the Medicare program as an alternative to the skilled nursing facility benefit longstanding in the Medicare program. It's it's more than home health care. And it's not exactly what a sniff does, because why the person could be living in their own home where they'd probably prefer to be in the first place. But, you know, we have seen, and, and this may sound very Pollyannish, but we have seen great opportunity coming through this pandemic period. And time and again, home care has stepped up 
I recall early contact with media where they were concerned about whether it's safe for people to have care in the home because of the PPE shortages and the like. And then the stories turned to the heroics of people going into the home setting. And then they turned to the preferred setting of care in the home and the safety that's there. So we've seen in a very short term an evolution in, in public eye and awareness of home care. But we have seen and heard repeated reports coming from within the healthcare realm itself of hospitals and physicians and managed care plans recognizing the opportunities with home care, the value that home care brings, the safety that home care brings to it. So, you know, in terms of a horrible pandemic time period, there is emerging that silver lining uh, that I think will pay dividends in home care permanently. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I especially like, you know, the fact that the public has been made aware of it, but the part that ultimately has the, the best return to home care is that these other healthcare sectors, after years of hesitancy, perhaps are now recognizing that value. I mean, we can't just rest on our laurels. We're going to have to prove value day in and day out. But I believe eyes have been opened. Absolutely. I mean, when you think of uh, as as we continue the shift towards value-based models and value-based care being provided, the home care industry is going to continue to shine through just beca- just because of their focus on the patients and making sure they're getting the right care at the right time. And now, especially in the right setting, which is, is within their home, keeping them safe. And one of the things that I know that I also saw come up is that recently CMS announced the additional of the $165 million in supplemental funding um, on the, the money follows the person demonstration program of then allowing certain Medicaid users to seamlessly transition from the nursing home or, or different types of institutional settings back into the home if they desire to do so. Well, and you, you see that that is one point of that value that we've demonstrated among mm-hmm many of them that are out there and HHS did a similar turn in uh, authorizing home care to be on the receiving side of some of the COVID-19 rapid testing. You know, a few years ago, we probably would have been ignored, you know, but uh, they're not ignoring us anymore and have been working very closely with us to identify, you know, how to prioritize distribution and use of that testing. So just to be recognized there indicates an absolute plus. You know, people oftentimes are not really aware of how deep home care is and how wide home care is as well. And one of the other things that was shown in the pandemic was its capability of being so versatile to pivot quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, without, the, without the investment in bricks and mortar, home care showed that it could change very quickly to adapt to a need that suddenly came along without any warning or hardly any warning as compared to you know, a, a bricks and mortar locations where everything from you know, the, the shape of their facility to infection controls and everything else, you know, became burdens for them. Home care, you know, could adjust its staffing, it could adjust its scheduling, it could adjust everything. All it needed was, you know, some resources, and that took a little while to come available, mm-hmm. but they but they weren't having to having to deal with that fixed cost of the bricks and mortar. And, you know, there's nothing more mobile uh, than something that's not, you know, anchored to the ground. 
Absolutely. And that, that speaks to the agility and the innovation of those within the industry and just how quickly and that we could mobilize and shift gears and, and change our focus to make sure that we're taking care of our industry and our people. Well, look what they did even with PPE as the biggest obstacle. Mm-hmm. The creativity of home care once again shown in that they, they, they realized, they said, wait a minute, don't they use masks and gloves at nail salons and tattoo parlors and furniture making places, you know, with woodworking that were closed at that point. And then they found a way to locate owners and operators to get access to that as a short term gap filler for the absence mm-hmm. of PPE. So how you couldn't be impressed with the creativity and resilience of home care, I don't know, but uh, we, we have def- definitely demonstrated that in shades. Absolutely. And and telehealth alone is is another area that really boomed in the past couple of months due to COVID, that providers that had it were maximizing their usage, and those that didn't were, you know, selecting vendors, getting it implemented into their daily practice. As, As the public health emergency ends in the future, along with the various waivers that are in place, what do you see as the future of telehealth and how that fits into to home health overall? Yeah, in fact, just before you know we started this discussion, I had a meeting with a member of Congress who brought up telehealth, you know, as a starting point for discussions relative to those elements of the pandemic that likely have permanent status. Now, you know, he wasn't fully aware of some of the, you know, barriers that we have to deal with, say, in the Medicare home health benefit and not getting paid for it, but. It is very apparent that telehealth uh, has a strong future in healthcare delivery in so many parts of healthcare, certainly in care in the home. Now, what's happening at the moment, you know, as a second stage of that, people in Washington are asking, you know, how do we put guardrails around this so we aren't subject to abuses? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, there's a commercial on TV where it involves uh, a technology provider and they have a healthcare person saying, we, we went from zero telehealth visits a day to 5,000 a day. Well, someone's going to raise eyebrows and say how many of those 5,000 were really just revenue raisers rather than necessary. Mm-hmm. So you always have to deal with those kinds of guardrails to protect against abuses. That's the phase that we're starting to move into now. What is it in telehealth that we want to keep if we don't want to keep it all? And how do we want to manage it? And you know, I think you know, home care is very well positioned to come up with good guardrails, good program integrity measures, good you know, aspects to utilization and quality controls within it. So that tells you we've graduated into the how rather than the weather uh, mm-hmm. we will do it. But I think pretty much everybody's prognosis is telehealth has an absolute you know, central feature in the lessons learned in the pandemic and what will become part of the permanent future. Very true. It'll it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out, and hopefully they rely on you know some early adopters and those that are efficiently and effectively utilizing it to be a part of that legislation and how it gets how it gets drafted and crafted as well as then executed. Yeah, and, and not to be crude, but I hope they recognize they should be paying us for it too. You know, it's, you know, it, it's it's not it's not exactly you know a, a freebie that home care can continue to offer, and mm-hmm. there and we've come up with ways we think that they can fairly pay for it without running into 
at least on the home health front, the, the problem they thought of was the thousand dollar telephone call that lasted mm -hmm. a few minutes, you know, which took mm -hmm. a home health agency from a lupa to a full episodic payment. And the difference between a, a three visit lupa and a 30 day episodic payment is somewhere between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars in some cases. So we've had to design it so that you don't have that being the the outcome of this. And I believe I believe it can be done safely for the Medicare program and create win 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 for the patient for for the mm -hmm. Medicare program and for the provider services. When we look forward, there's another reason telehealth has to be there. You know, in person care is essential. It's always going to be part of care in the home. But we do not exactly have a glut of nurses out there. We have a shortage. And telehealth allows that nurse to be extended into many more patients rather than being on a highway traveling from one patient's home to another. You've got to strike a balance there. Like I said, in-person home care, if that goes away. They Maybe they even change the label. It's no longer really home care. But you know, a combination of that as a tool, telehealth as a tool to maximize the resources available while still balancing in in-person visits is a great recipe for success for the long-term value of care in the home. That Yeah, that, that one telehealth call to the patient to check in on them could mean a lot of things. It, it, it helps understand that symptoms are progressing with the patient, or it's a good care call and just to check in to make sure that they're doing okay. It could be preventing a rehospitalization. The options are endless um, of, of the preventative nature that telehealth has that really just helps us be, continue to be an extension of the caregiver for that patient and their family to make sure that they're being safe within their home. So we're shifting gears a little bit on, on virtual and, you know, vir going from virtual visits. So let's talk a little bit about the virtual NAC annual conference um, that's coming up set for October 19th to the, through the 21st. It'll well, look and feel a little bit different than past years, but what, what can the attendees expect, Bill? Well, uh, you know, let me first offer a side. I really wish we were going to be in Tampa in a few weeks' time because that setting, you know, I visited that setting earlier this year. The convention center is fantastic. The hotels, the waterfront that was there, the life that's there in Tampa, you know, just absolutely wonderful. We will be going to Tampa, I believe, in 2024. You know, we had to negotiate our way out of some contracts with this, but it was essential. I mean, the convention center, for example, told us, yes, we could hold the event if we wanted to in person, but it was going to be limited to 600 total people, which wasn't going to work. You know, uh, so we are virtual. We have uh, acquired a whole new platform for the virtual conference from what we did on our financial management conference, which came off pretty well. But this is trying to give a few elements to the conference that were lacking in the financial management conference to give it an appearance more of being at a conference. And there's no way you can make a, a, a video visual appear like a three-dimensional one would be in person. But most importantly, it's given us some opportunities to create networking between attendees and exhibitors, uh, faculty, attendees, and exhibitors, everybody. So that was a key factor in us adopting this platform was greater opportunities to have that kind of networking, which you know, typically you know, was one of the main reasons anyone would go to a conference. We are doing 
the thing fully virtual, but it's also a full, full conference. Everybody who is attending that conference not only gets the workshops that they will listen to, watch, you know, on the days of the conference, but they will get access to every single workshop that has been done and be able to share it with their staff, you know, share and work with it at their own time frame. We also will be offering a series of webinars that follow it because you can only pack so many video conferences into virtual you know, programs into a single day. We're going to be doing a series of webinars that follow that become part of the package of what attendees will get. So it essentially takes the conference from a three-day event to maybe a three-month event that way, but more than enough to satisfy anybody in a single day. The exhibit arrangement should prove to be if people use it, which is an encouragement I'm offering people, will prove to be a great opportunity to have, I think, solid interaction with the innovators, you know, be it in technology, consulting, everything, you know, that, that helps home care, you know, happen on a daily basis. And so we are really pleased with what we've developed there. We know that lots of people have uh, many options out there, but I don't think they're going to find the kind of programming that we have there going on. And in particular, some of the programming that we'll have from a general session standpoint. We have someone who's going to be one of the general session keynote speakers who's going to be talking about value in another way, and that's the value and easiness of kindness uh, that can be made part of your everyday life that'll help you in your personal as well as your professional life. Uh, I'm going to make sure I attend that one. I need to have more than a dose of kindness, I think. So we're very excited about this. Uh, we, we really think it's going to be a state-of-the-art virtual conference. At the same time, I'll admit to something. We are planning you know, in-person conferences for next year for both the Financial Managers Conference and the annual meeting, which will be in New Orleans. But we're having to plan you know, a step back if necessary to virtual conferences on that. So we really look forward to, you know, people counseling us on how this virtual conference is coming out and what we could do to further improve. But I don't think anybody will go to this and, and look back at it and say it wasn't the best virtual conference. And for those people who've come to know me a lot in the last 33 years, they know I generally am not offering those kinds of positive remarks. So, uh, yeah. That all sounds awesome, you know, yeah. just from the, the way that you all pivoted to making the most of, you know, these unprecedented times to the NAC and the faculty and, you know, all of the vendors, all of the providers, it really takes everybody chipping in and, and making the most of this and how it sounds like the virtual platform and being able to then have access to those recordings and being able to then see it through and continuing web events well past those three days it's something to definitely look forward to and i'm i'm looking forward to it but as well i look forward to seeing your face in the future uh once we're able to to get back to in-person conferences i'm looking forward to that as well i do as well i do as well you know that uh, i i need all that great food that we offer in the exhibit hall <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, as as always, you know, we anticipate the final role coming out around Halloween. Bill, we know that you give out copies of it to the trick-or-treaters along with the full-size candy bars, right? So what do you expect to be, it maybe see in the rule that may differ from the proposed rule, if anything? Well, you know, the, the central focus that we've had on the proposed rule, you know, is the behavioral adjustment 
the 4.36% adjustment that's in the 2020 rule. You know, we can be very appreciative of CMS not wanting to create difficulties by tinkering with the model. So the PDGM model will stay the same in terms of the case mix adjuster, you know, the grouper, uh, as some people call it, and, and also the loop of standards and all that. But they're also proposing to continue the 4.36 adjustment into 2021. So we've asked CMS to roll it back for 2020. We anticipate they'll say we don't have enough data to do it for 2020, but we'll say they got enough data not to continue it into 2021. And if they still say they don't have enough data, we say, well, then make a mid-year adjustment because the data that we've seen, nationwide information, shows to us that the lupas that they projected to be decreasing have increased. And, you know, they, they have gone down from March, April, and May, but they're still well in excess of what CMS had projected. And similarly, CMS projected upcoding on the primary diagnosis, and there's no evidence of that. Even before the COVID pandemic in January and February claims, so we see plenty of reason for CMS to step away from that. So that's the central feature of our advocacy related to the final rules. And that's what we hope to see. You know, uh, none of us have a good, clear crystal ball on where CMS may go. Chances are, based on conversations we had before they even put out the proposed rule, they're going to be hesitant to make any change because they're only going to have several months worth of data available to them at the time the rule goes final. And we would not want them to assume too much. That was the problem that they already did with the behavioral adjustment. They assumed too much, which is why we then say we need it. You know, we really think it would be warranted to do it, you know, at worst, a mid-year adjustment next year when they have a full year of data under their belt. So that's the one thing I'll be looking for when that rule comes out on whatever day, be Halloween or otherwise. That's the first thing I'll be looking at. And it's important not only because of the rates that come from it, but it's important from the, the, the policy side of it you know what what does cms think is the right way to handle policy when they rely on assumptions you know for this first year of pdgm and those assumptions just turn out to be not well based for two reasons we didn't think they were well based to begin with but nobody expected covid19 but that tells you why assumptions are not a good way to go for setting payment policy that is very true. So all eyes will be waiting for that that to come out and, and getting the debrief on it from you and the team once it comes out and we're able to digest everything in it and what it means for the industry. Bill, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Great conversation. Uh, enjoyed every enjoyed your time and uh, always the insight shared. Uh, you, you truly are uh, the voice and the advocacy of, of the industry and can't thank you enough for all you do for the industry and, and, and as well as all of the providers and the caregivers out there. So I hope everyone enjoyed today's episode of McBee Care Threads podcast. At McBee, we understand the challenges providers face across the healthcare landscape. For more than 45 years, we've been a part of the evolution of the healthcare industry. Our strategic advisory solutions span the home health, hospice, health system, and senior living care continuums, creating improved clinical, financial, and operational outcomes. Our expertise is guaranteed. Our solutions empower. Visit us today at McBeeAssociates.com. Thank you for listening to McBee Care Threads. 
To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. For more information on the topics discussed today, visit our website at mcbassociates.com. Until next time. Thank you.